Hello, and welcome to the final episode in the Hobbit Lecture Series. Admit it, most of you thought you'd never live to see this day. Nevertheless, I give you Hobbit Lecture number 8, Return and Recovery. In the last lecture, we looked at the proliferation of dragon sickness that made the desolation of the dragon almost more desolate after the dragon's death than it was before. We talked about Tolkien's idea of eucatastrophe, the sudden miraculous turn which brings about the happy ending of a story, and I suggested that even more than the dramatic intervention of the eagles, the outbreak of the Battle of Five Armies is what actually turns the tide and prevents the disaster that was just on the cusp of falling. In the beginning of chapter 18, we can see in the aftermath of the battle the lasting change that has come upon all of the combatants. Well, okay, I mean, not upon the goblins and wargs, I guess. Death is mostly what has come upon them, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm referring to the healing that we can see in the changed perspective and attitudes of the dwarves, elves, and men. Thorin, of course, has had a complete change of heart, and his apology to Bilbo gives us a clear indication of how his priorities have shifted during the course of the battle. Thorin now seems to be applying in peacetime and within his personal relationships the lesson he seems to have learned when the goblins attacked. Just as in the battle we saw him rallying his allies and charging to their defense at the cost of his own life, so now we see him laying aside his ownership claims and his suspicions, and embracing the friendship which Bilbo for his part never abandoned. Thorin declares plainly that his perspective has changed much since before the battle, when he was reneging on his deal with Bard and shooting at his messengers from behind the brick wall. Since I leave now all gold and silver, he tells Bilbo, and go where it is of little worth, I wish to part in friendship from you. Thorin suggests that it's only his imminent death which has reformed his attitude towards gold and silver, but I think there's just a hint of self-deprecation here. Even before death, his attitude had changed. In that last charge, he had already come out of his shell of greed and selfishness, and reached out self-sacrificially to aid those whom his greed had taught him to regard as his enemies. Thorin's new perspective on the value of treasure is plainly reflected in the actions of his cousin Dan when he becomes king under the mountain. Dan immediately starts living up to the old ideal of the king under the mountain, giving away large amounts of gold both to reward his friends and to win the support of allies. He crowned the chief of the eagles with gold, we are told, and swore friendship with them forever, two acts which are obviously related to each other. He wins the support of the followers and kinsmen of Thorin chiefly, it suggested, because he dealt his treasure well. That is what gold is for when you're a king, not for sitting on, dragon-like, and starving, as Bilbo says that Thorin was prepared to do. The elves also seem to have had their perspective renewed after the battle. As I suggested in the last episode, they really didn't have much business dashing to the mountain like scavengers in the first place, and they had even less business doing so with an army prepared for battle. As it happened, however, the elven king's profiteering turned out for the best. It is indeed an ill wind that blows no one any good, as the elven king himself said, and the same can be said for all of the elves. They go home with little treasure certainly less than the elven king was hoping for when he set out, even though Bard does generously give him the emeralds of Girion, which seem to be one of the chief treasures of Dale. But the elves have been reminded what matters much more than the gold that they sought, and they leave the mountain glad, for now the northern world would be merrier for many a long day. Peace restored to their region is a much greater gift than gold or gems, and now the dragon was dead, and the goblins overthrown, and their hearts could look forward after winter to a spring of joy. On the last page of the book, we're told that all this promising beginning brought about through the battle has indeed taken root, and the desolation of the dragon is finally healed. The land itself has been cleansed. We learn that all the valley had become tilled again and rich, and the desolation was now filled with birds and blossoms in spring, and fruit and feasting in autumn. 
and even more importantly, there was friendship in those parts between elves and dwarves and men. This last assurance that things have ended up happily at the mountain, however, is accompanied by a cautionary tale which detracts from the perfection of the happy ending. There was, it seems, one significant, though perhaps unsurprising, exception to the general upswelling of harmony, generosity, and goodwill. One last unreclaimed patch of dragonish desolation, the old master of Lake Town. He does indeed come to a bad end, an end which serves as the perfect illustration of the logical tendency of dragonishness. Laden with gold which he has stolen to keep for himself, he dies of starvation in the waste, deserted by his companions. This is the kind of end which Thorin only narrowly averted, and it certainly does speak well for Thorin, showing that the prospect of death is not enough by itself to save one from the warped perspective the dragon sickness brings. Although Bilbo was the only person taking a stand against the dragon sickness in the day before the battle, we can see that his experience at the mountain has increased his own wisdom, and made him even less likely to be blinded by the allure of treasure even than he was before. From the point of view of the denouement, when the treasure is being wisely used by Dan and Bard to save lives and cement alliances, the original plan of the party that met in Bag End in Chapter 1 seems absolutely ridiculous. The idea that the fourteen of them would split the entire horde into fourteen equal shares is simplistic and naive almost to the point of childishness. This is the wealth and livelihood of two entire nations of people we're talking about. We should remember that, despite his comparatively high resistance to the dragon sickness, Bilbo himself unquestioningly bought into this silly and short-sighted plan. When Smaug maliciously pointed out that the plan was wildly impractical, Bilbo was really very taken aback, for he had indeed been assuming he would be traveling back to the Shire with more gold than the rest of its citizens probably had put together. Even as late as his fireside conversation with Bard and the Elven King, he is still carrying around on his person the contract letter that Thorin left on his mantelpiece in Bag End, so that he can produce documentary evidence of his terms of employ. After the Battle of Five Armies, however, Bilbo too sees things differently. Having seen firsthand the effect that treasure has on people, he realized that he could not possibly have gotten his treasure home without war and murder all along the way. He has already given up his share of the treasure and the jewel that he desired for the sake of peace. Now he sees that any attempt to claim his own would simply cause more of exactly the kind of conflict that he's already tried to avert. Bilbo's experiences when he returns to his home would seem to confirm the wisdom of his choice. His old neighbors show their own kind of small-scale greed— a kind of minor league version of the dragon sickness. The quarrel with the Sackville Bagginses is the most pointed example. They coveted his beautiful hobbit hole so intensely that they allow that desire to create division between their families, and, if Bilbo's suspicion is true, even to overcome their honesty in the stealing of his silver spoons. All this matter of spoons and family might seem like small potatoes after the clash of nations that Bilbo has lately been a part of, but though the scale is different, we can see the same patterns at work. It does make one wonder what might have happened had Bilbo in fact come home with his allotted portion of the dragon's horde. Would there have been war and murder in the Shire? Doesn't seem impossible. The wisdom of Bilbo's perspective on treasure is, of course, one of the things that Thorin observes during his apology to the Hobbit right before his death. "'There is more in you of good than you know, child of the kindly West,' he observes. "'Some courage and some wisdom blended in measure. "'If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.'" Thorin's description of Bilbo, this blending of wisdom and courage combined with the love of food and cheer and song, perfectly characterizes the final stages of the development of Bilbo's character. 
Ever since chapter one, we've been watching this struggle between Bilbo's Took and Baggins' sides. Thinking in Thorin's terms here, the clash has been between his initially dominant preference for food and cheer, the Baggins' side, and his latent penchant for courage and song, his Took side. In the beginning, these were simply in conflict. At least, the Baggins' side wanted nothing to do with the Took side. Remember that image of Bilbo sitting on a stool in the hall while the dwarves are chatting about troubles with the goblins and the depredations of dragons around his table? Bilbo tries to pretend he is not having one of those nasty, uncomfortable, and tookish adventures, longing instead to be left in peace to enjoy his tea cakes, which he greatly fears he will not now get any of. When his took side wins out and he volunteers for the adventure, it is a short-lived rejection of his Baggins-ish tendency. He's willing even to go without bed and breakfast, remember. His Baggins side regrets this choice many a time afterwards, we're told, and we are constantly reminded that the Baggins in him has not been simply squelched over the course of his adventure. The repeated longing for his tea kettle just beginning to sing, and the frequent fantasies about eggs and bacon, are enough to demonstrate that. The interesting thing to watch has been the way in which the two sides of Bilbo have been coming to work together. We saw Bilbo's tookishness begin to develop confidence after his first turning point, back in the Misty Mountains at the encounter with Gollum. We saw Bilbo's talents as hero and adventurer really come into their own after his second turning point, in Mirkwood with the spiders. What we noticed at the time, however, was that the Baggins side, his domestic and comparatively prosaic values, did not seem to fade as the Took side really came into its own. His outlook was tempered, and his perspective sobered by it, even as his situation became more and more outlandish, and he ultimately found himself going alone to confront a dragon in its lair, to which he gained entrance through a magic tunnel on the wings of prophetic song. Throughout these events, his sensible Baggins side never abandons him, maturing into the wisdom which kept him grounded in good sense even while everyone around him was getting carried away to one extreme or another. At the end of the story, we see that Bilbo hasn't just transformed into a completely adventurous took who loves nothing better than a life of adventure and excitement on the high road, nor has he reverted to a stay-at-home Baggins who turns away from his adventure with a shudder and a sigh of relief. Bilbo now embraces both worlds. Just as his Baggins perspective didn't leave him at his moments of high adventure, so his tookish outlook is not banished when he returns home. He may retire to the safe and comfortable world of his little hobbit hole again, but even Bag End itself, the epicenter of all Baggins-ishness, becomes permanently marked with decidedly tookish touches. His sword Sting, with which he routed the giant spiders single-handedly, hangs above his mantelpiece. His front hallway, where he used to keep his walking sticks and his map of his favorite walks, now features a magnificent suit of glittering armor— he still loves to take walks, but his walks now take him to visit the elves. Now when you find him sitting on his lawn and smoking, he might well be composing poetry. We can see a charming illustration of Bilbo's comfortable assimilation of both of his previously conflicting outlooks through the exchange of invitations between Bilbo and the surviving dwarves when he leaves the Lonely Mountain. If you ever visit us again when our halls are made fair once more, they say, then the feast shall indeed be splendid. Bilbo is now at home in that world, guest of honor at a splendid feast in the glittering halls of the king under the mountain. If ever you are passing my way, Bilbo responds, don't wait to knock. Tea is at four, but any of you are welcome at any time. He may be at home in the high and adventurous world, but if you're looking for him, you will find him having tea and cakes back at his hobbit hole, as he was in chapter one. Notice, however, the important change. Bilbo now welcomes unexpected parties. If uninvited dwarves were to show up on his doorstep again, he would welcome them. They needn't even stop to knock. 
Bilbo is returning to his Baggins environment, but now there are open and standing invitations between him and the Tookish world of adventure. Bilbo has lost the respect of his neighbors, whose point of view remains resolutely and uncompromisingly Baggins-like. He is, however, quite content, and very happy to the end of his days. When Gandalf and Balin show up in the closing scene of the book, they find Bilbo sitting in his study, writing his memoirs. This last image of Bilbo is another wonderful illustration of the end state of Bilbo's character, sitting in peace and comfort and writing down the story of his great journey, reflecting upon and reliving his adventure within the quiet context of his home at Bag End. He has both gone there and also come back again, and through his book brings the two together. There's a moment when we're given a clear view into Bilbo's processing of his experience, of the union of his experiences there as he comes back again. I refer, of course, to his final song. The Roads Go Ever Ever On song is not the first song he has composed. That honor goes to his earlier efforts in the well-established literary genre of spider aggravation poetry. This song, however, is Bilbo's signature poetic work, the one which the younger generation of hobbits whom we meet in The Lord of the Rings will recall most clearly and associate with Bilbo. Roads go ever, ever on, over rock and under tree, by caves where never sun has shone, by streams that never find the sea, over snow by winter sown, and through the merry flowers of June, over grass and over stone, and under mountains in the moon. Roads go ever, ever on, under cloud and under star, yet feet that wandering have gone turn at last to home afar. Eyes that fire and sword have seen, and horror in the halls of stone, look at last on meadows green, and trees and hills they long have known. Now the first thing to notice about this song is that the whole thing is just a statement of facts, given in the present tense. It's all just description. The first stanza in particular just talks about places that roads go, and it emphasizes the surroundings, the simple variety of different settings through which the roads go. The roads go everywhere, over grass and under mountain, through winter and through summer. This stanza is certainly a testimony to the very great breadth of experience that Bilbo himself has acquired on his year-long journey, but notice how impersonal it remains. There is never a reference to him as an actor, or indeed to any events or actions whatsoever, just the passive locations and seasons. Knowing his adventures, we can identify many of them and remember the events he's thinking of. The sunless caves and streams that never find the sea, finding instead, perhaps, a subterranean lake, should make us think of Gollum. And we might remember Bjorn's gardens full of merry flowers, and we might recall a nerve-wracking walk at the feet of the mountains in the moonlight as the goblins pursue him and the wargs close in. But Bilbo's perspective in that first stanza is completely detached, a very wide and distant view of the places that this road he has been on has gone. In the second stanza, Bilbo himself begins to appear a bit more as a character, and even to allude to particular events and scenes. He doesn't shift to the first person, though, and he still remains detached. He talks about wandering feet returning home, and he talks about eyes that have seen battle and horror in the halls of stone, and which are now looking at last on familiar trees and meadows once again. It is as if Bilbo is, in his song, considering this phenomenon objectively, singing about the experience of a wanderer returning to his quiet home from wild adventures. He reflects on the fact that the same roads go to all these places. The road is the link that connects the mountains and Mirkwood and the lake to Bilbo's quiet home. The roads, which go ever, ever on, took him from his old world and into the new world, exciting and dangerous, and now they're taking him back again. 
Fascinatingly, the song doesn't give any answers. It offers its detached summary of the meeting of worlds and seasons that the roads facilitate, but it never gives any outcomes. What does happen when eyes that have seen horror and battle look at last on trees and hills they long have known? Remember that Bilbo starts spontaneously singing this at the moment when his hill, which he has longed for so many times, the ultimate destination of his long journey, has finally appeared before him again. He knows that he has changed, and that the home he has pined after will never again look quite the same. Perhaps the point of view in his song is so detached because he doesn't know the answer. He doesn't know what things will actually be like. We might even, perhaps, hear a little anxiety in the song. Definitely some uncertainty. Gandalf's response acknowledges Bilbo's thoughts and uncertainties. He recognizes that Bilbo has indeed changed, noting, You are not the hobbit that you were. Of course, the very fact that Bilbo is composing a song about returning home from his travels shows how much his travels have changed him. The old Bilbo would never have done that. He is different, for he is now in his own memories, bringing together all those different sights and settings from stanza one, and those widely divergent experiences from stanza two. The roads might link the worlds together, but they are, like the point of view of the song, inert, passive. He is the one who brings all of these things together, and that does indeed make him a different hobbit than he used to be. Gandalf also seems to be teasing Bilbo gently, with his comical and exaggerated, "'Something is the matter with you!' Bilbo has changed, but the transformation brought about by his immersion in the adventurous world, it turns out, is not so bad as he seemed to believe it would be back in chapter 1. What Bilbo actually finds after his return is that he enjoys and appreciates his old domestic life even more than he did before. In his old life, he took the beauty and comforts of his home for granted. Look, for instance, at his relationship with the country round about. When he's riding out with the dwarves at the beginning of their trip, he doesn't enjoy the country at all. They are riding through a fine morning just before May, but all Bilbo can think about is how silly he looks in the second-hand cloak he borrowed from Dwalin. The land around him receives no description, being only acknowledged as a wide respectable country inhabited by decent folk. His experience on the homeward road is quite different. Now, walking next to his gold-laden pony through the quiet and gentle country he has so often longed for, he finds that the land was green and there was much grass through which the hobbit strolled along contentedly. Having walked under mountains in the moon, through caves where never sun has shone, through horror and swords, he has an appreciation for his home that he never had before. His experience of Bag End is similar. Having thought with desperate and sometimes despairing longing of his quiet hearth and tea kettle, while in situations that were always uncomfortable and sometimes lethal, he now finds that the sound of his kettle was ever after more musical than it had been, even in the quiet days before the unexpected party. Bilbo is indeed a changed hobbit, but becoming an adventurer has not spoiled or destroyed his old life of peace and contentment. In being taken out of that world, he finds when he returns that he has regained it, and that now it is very much enriched. By losing it, he has found it. In the end, Bilbo has not only gained a refreshed perspective on his Bagginsish world, he now has some appreciation for the big picture of which his little world is a small part. He first processes this not exactly in a song, but in highly poetic language, as he is climbing the misty mountains on the way home. Remember that on his outward journey he looked back from the heights of those mountains, and could only think that somewhere far away, where things were blue and faint, lay his little hobbit hole. That is, he didn't even really look at the world in between, he still had a kind of tunnel vision, wrapped up in his own little life and his own concerns. He and his tiny world were all he thought about. 
On the way home, when he turns and looks back east over the wild, he takes in the whole country, seeing Mirkwood stretched out below him and the lonely mountain tipped in snow in the far distance. So comes snow after fire, Bilbo observes, and even dragons have their ending. The opposition of snow and fire might remind us of the way in which Tolkien invited us, through his chapter title, to see the fight between Smaug and Eskaroth as an elemental clash between fire and water, from which perspective the outcome is far from surprising. Bilbo's perspective here is even wider, and by opposing fire with snow, Bilbo is seeing the whole story as part of a huge and unavoidable process, like the changing of the seasons. Smaug may have believed that he was unconquerable, and that he would rule mountain and lake for age after age, but he was wrong. Even dragons have their ending, just as summer heat is cooled by winter, and spring comes again after. Bilbo's story, and the story of Thorin's family, and their turns of fortune, and the story of the long and legendary career of Smaug the Magnificent, all take their place in the much larger story that rolls across lands and down through the ages. In the last two chapters, we see several hints at this, reminders that the story of Bilbo's journey is only a part of a much wider story. With the passing of the dragon, the kingdoms of the mountain and of Dale are re-established, and peace and prosperity have returned to the northern kingdoms which had lain in waste for a hundred years. Moreover, Bjorn's emergence and his decision to take an active role in the life of the region results in the establishment of a new realm where before there had been only goblin-haunted wilderness, and in the days of his line a new peace came over the edge of the wild. As an added bonus, Gandalf reports to Elrond that the shadowy and terrible necromancer has also been driven out of his stronghold in Mirkwood, and that even that black forest will grow somewhat more wholesome. As the elves anticipate, the northern world will indeed be merrier for many a long day, and that age of the world has rolled around to a spring of joy. We should recall, of course, that even before these great events resolve themselves, we've had hints that something big was afoot. Think back to all those references to the extraordinary luck that has guided and guarded the steps of Bilbo and his company throughout their adventure. I talked a couple of lectures ago about how conspicuous it was that their strokes of fortune always seemed to divert them just to the unexpected and undesirable paths which happened to lead them to the only possible safe roads to their destination. This happened when they were captured by the goblins and rerouted, bringing them to Bjorn's house. This happened when they were tangled by spiders and captured by elves and thus rerouted to Lake Town. But if Bilbo had never ridden a barrel to Lake Town, the fateful nighttime battle between dragon and lake men might never have happened. And if they had not been captured by goblins and killed their chief, the goblins almost certainly would not have attacked in force, and just in the nick of time. And had they not ended up in the area of Bjorn's house, he would never have become involved and dealt the final winning blow in that battle, coming out of his isolationist shell to tip the scales in the battle and lead all of the western wild into a new era of peace and harmony. There definitely seems to be some larger cosmic conspiracy going on here. When we also recall the frankly supernatural elements that enter into Bilbo's story in its latter stages, our suspicions seem roundly confirmed. The fortuitous finding of the prophetic moon letters, and their nearly miraculous fulfillment by the grey stone on Durin's day, under the supervision of a magical thrush, certainly seem to indicate some greater power at work. From a mountaintop point of view, it looks rather like Bilbo's adventure was part of a large and intricate plan. In the closing scene, Gandalf confirms this suspicion. When Bilbo marvels that the old prophetic songs in Lake Town seem to have come true, Gandalf replies, "'Surely you don't disbelieve the prophecies, because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself?' Gandalf seems to be seeking to refresh Bilbo's perspective here. He is, for the moment, thinking of his adventure as if it were only his adventure, and forgetting the bigger picture. 
"'You don't really suppose, do you?' he asks, "'that all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck, "'just for your sole benefit?' "'Gandalf here confirms for Bilbo two things. First, that his adventure and escapes were indeed managed by someone and not by mere luck, and second, that the purpose of this management went far beyond the benefit of one hobbit. Bilbo might have thought originally that he was setting out on a quest for dragon gold, an adventure which would end either in death or in personal enrichment. He has indeed been enriched in far more than just gold, but Gandalf reminds him that what he was involved in was much bigger than that, and he has served as the instrument of a providential plan which has brought healing to the land and blessing to thousands. He may have been a key figure and the protagonist of this particular story, but he remains only quite a little fellow in the wide world after all. Bilbo accepts this confirmation both of the importance of his adventure and the relative unimportance of himself with good cheer. Thank goodness, he says, laughing, showing the contentment and the humility that so prominently mark his character after his return from his journey. And thus, dear friends, we come to the end of our journey. Did you know that I sat down to write Hobbit Lecture 1 back in the summer of 2007? In the four and a half years since then, I have had another child, gotten tenure, set out to reinvent and democratize online education, and seen a couple million copies of my podcast episodes go out. What a journey it's been. Thanks to all of you who have come along on it with me. The interactions I've had with you guys over the last several years has been a great encouragement and inspiration to me. I am now, in December of 2011, finishing up the final manuscript of my book, which is based on this lecture series. As most of you know, Exploring the Hobbit will be published by the Houghton Mifflin Company in September of 2012, and that too will be a fun journey. When The Hobbit turns 75 next September, look for my book on the shelves. In the meantime, I'm building a special new section of the Mythgard Institute webpage dedicated to my Hobbit material, featuring this lecture series and exclusive updates on the progress of my book. That should be up soon. Check out www.mythgard.org for updates. As always, thanks for listening, and Godspeed.